The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools and investors seeking promising ag tech startups or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to find out more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. Yeah, I love mentoring. I really, really love coaching other founders, if only just to avoid all the mistakes that I've made <laughs> to speed up their paths to success. It's a lot of fun, right? It's a lot of fun. There's something infectious about founders and entrepreneurs in that, again, it's being around that energy of I can do something that has a meaningful impact on this world in some capacity. I can make a dent and secure my place in this, in this universe. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast Season 3, welcome back. It's been a couple of weeks, been on hiatus, catching my breath, getting some of these great interviews produced. And I'm really excited to be back in the saddle. I'm your host, Harry Duran. If this is the first time listening to the Vertical Farming Podcast, welcome, 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 one and all. It's the show where I interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. Excited to bring you a new round of fantastic conversations with inspiring leaders. Just to give you a little bit of a sneak peek, Coming up, we have Robert Lang from Farm One, Nicholas Steiner from Moliere, Eric Levesque from Cultivated, and conversations are in the works with the teams from Vertical Harvest, NetLED, Cubic Farms, and others. Special thanks this season to the team at Cultivated, who you heard mentioned at the beginning of the show. We're honored that they've partnered with us as the title sponsor for Season 3. Stay tuned for an upcoming episode with one of the co-founders. If you're not familiar with them, they serve as vertical farming brokers and help match your project with the right indoor farm technology, which is going to save you a lot of time and money. Okay, I'm excited to kick off Season 3 with Allison Koff. She's the founder and CEO of Artemis, the market-leading cultivation management platform serving the fruit, vegetable, floriculture, cannabis, and hemp industries. Allison was named one of Forbes' 2019 30 Under 30, as well as one of New York Business Journal's 2019 Women of Influence. In this episode, we discuss Allison's background in physics and what influenced her to enter the field of ag tech. 
We talk about her time at Bright Farms, lessons she's learned through her entrepreneurial journey, and her passion for developing software that can help the overall ag tech industry. She shares her passion for science and what inspired her to work in agriculture, talks about the supportive role her mother played in her entrepreneurial journey, and what she loves about mentoring other founders. She provides best practices for aspiring entrepreneurs, what inspired her to launch Artemis, and the need to leverage new technologies and systematize processes. Lastly, we learn about her investment role at X-Factor Ventures, what has her excited about the future initiatives at Artemis. Such a great way to kick off season three. I can't wait to jump into this conversation. This episode is also brought to you by the Vertical Farming Weekly Newsletter. Each week, our team member Daniel Dre scours the ends of the earth, (laughs) climbs mountains and fords rivers to bring you the latest and greatest in the world of vertical farming. I got to have a little fun with these intros sometimes. Sign up today at verticalfarmingweekly.com. We're also opening up space for sponsorship of the newsletter, and I'm also investigating opportunities to provide a small classified section. So if any of those opportunities interest you, email me at harry at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed past seasons or this episode, I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. I'm excited to read yours out next. Okay, let's kick off season three with Allison. So Allison Koff, founder and CEO of Artemis, thank you so much for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Super happy to be here. So uh, where's home for you now? Right now? So we actually moved to Pennsylvania, Northeast Pennsylvania, about an hour and a half outside of Scranton. So anybody who knows the area knows that we are in about three and a half feet of snow this week, which has been (laughs) a lot of fun. (laughs) I'm home for me is currently uh, Minneapolis. Oh, awesome. Sub-zero temperatures for about yeah. <laughs> two weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except for that you guys are more used to it than we are. So my husband and I moved out from Brooklyn just a few months okay. ago. And so used to the cold being from the Northeast, but not used to the very cold that happens yes. as soon as you go from city to very rural. <laughs> so actually, I'm new here because my partner's oh. from here. She grew up here. I'm originally from New York. I grew up in Yonkers, New oh, York. awesome. <laughs> so. Yeah. So you know what I'm talking about then, <laughs> that move from the city to the real cold. Yeah, the next level cold. Exactly. The, where they walk on where they walk on lakes here. <laughs> so it's just kind of funny. I've been watching all the videos in Amsterdam of them of people ice skating on the yes. canals, which is so cool. Oh yeah. And so we were looking for the lakes to skate to skate on because we have skates and and then I remembered that I have no way to judge how deep. Like in my head I thought, Well, this is such a great idea. We can go skating on the lakes. Yeah. And then of course, not being very much a city kid, not a rural kid. Yes. I'm like, oh, I don't know how to tell if that's four feet thick or not. <laughs> <laughs> so we abandoned all hope and we moved on to skating in a rink. <laughs> What's interesting is that the way it's been explained to me is that it's about surface tension. Mm-hmm. So the ice does not have to be super thick. Like you would think it has to be like a foot thick or something. I think six inches they said is enough because if you think about when you stand on ice, if it's a thin platform, it's distributed. Yeah. And there's stories of people driving across the lakes, which is would freak me out. It would definitely freak me out. I would not do it. I'd also, even if I went skating on it, I'd just stay by the edge, very much on the edge, (laughs) just where I know that it's kind of safe, or at least I could get out. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It's so funny because a friend of my partner's, uh, she's like, oh yeah, yeah, I always carry screwdrivers with me. And I'm like, I had to think about that for a second. It's in case you fall through, you're able to like pull yourself out of the ice. Oh, wow. (laughs) So that's what I said. I don't, I just don't have. (laughs) <laughs> so I was like, okay, yeah, next level type stuff. So that's interesting. So I was looking that uh, you majored in physics. Is I did, correct? yeah. How young were you when you realized that the sciences or, or a topic like that was of interest to you? 
Well, that's a great question. I think, I think I was always into science, at least since I can remember. I was always much better at math and science than I was at other things, at writing, at any of the sort of the other skills, right? And and it's interesting, my mother was a writer at the time, and is a writer, I should say, but at the time she was writing. And my father was an accountant. So I had sort of both the sides of this, this sort of right and left, yeah. creative, yeah, the creative writer and then the math, but I only got the math side of it. I have to work very hard to get good at writing, but I was always really interested in it. I think it was more the creativity towards things that couldn't be explained that was really attractive to me about the sciences. It was how do you look at problems of things that are happening around you and try and approach a solution to them and even go about trying to think about how to create a solution to things. And with the sciences, it's always about digging into them and just kind of getting your your feet wet and your hands dirty and sort of digging in full throttle and trying to solve in a really structured, organized way, which was really attractive to me. But I didn't start out studying physics. I started out in computer engineering and and made the shift to physics after probably midway through college because I found that computer engineering for my brain was a little bit too repetitive until you got in an educational sense. It wasn't until you got to the creative application of computer engineering that was really interesting. But in academia, it's a lot of just studying the books, right? And so that was a lot less interesting to me, whereas physics is a lot of theory, no matter what it applied or not, it's going to be a lot of theory. And so the academic side of it was as interesting to me as the applied side. So I found myself gravitating towards the hard sciences and really moving into physics closer towards the middle, towards the end of college for me. How important was it to have a good teacher? Because I think about the few that I remember mm-hmm. from high school. And the, my physics teacher actually stands out. His name is Mr. Tedesco, if I remember correctly. <laughs> and I think the reason I remembered it is because he took such a complex subject like physics and made it relatively easy to understand, which I thought was yes. fascinating. Yeah, I think it's so important. So I will give a huge shout out to Kevin Bredberg, wherever in the world you are, uh, <laughs> who was a teacher of, of the sciences, right? In high school for me. But what one of the things that he did that I loved was he created a program, and I'm not sure if he gets all the credit for this, right? Somebody else probably should get some credit somewhere. But he, I went to a big public school in New York, and he created or ran this program called Science Research. I think other people, I think other public schools have this. I'm not entirely too sure, but I think other public schools have this, where you can take, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it was two years, it might have been one, but two years, where you design a research experiment, and you design an area of research that you want to dig into. And it culminated in some sort of a cardboard cutout type presentation thing that we all had to do, but but more in front of more impressive judges and things, (laughs) like an elevated science fair, right? And I had studied how nutritional supplements could affect your cognitive ability. And so you're thinking about like a high schooler who's trying to structure this research, which is pretty deep and really interesting. And you go into it for a year or two years, really immersive. And it's in your free time. It's kind of a add-on because, you know, a little bit of a nerd here. But, but that program really got my eyes open to what science could be in an applied way. And if I look back at my career and all the way through academia, almost everything I've tried to do was that experiential learning. And Bredberg was great at this, but also my senior physics teacher, we did cardboard boats that we tried to had to compete in a race across the mm. like pool. Like everything that I loved about science was because it was super hands-on. And that that's just what was really interesting to me. And as a city girl, when did you start to have an awareness for 
agriculture or nature or things that would eventually come to play later on? Yeah. So I grew up in the suburbs right outside of the city, not actually kind of adjacent to Yonkers. So we're probably across the bridge neighbors, but wasn't really in farming country. It wasn't until I'd say lightly in college, I worked on a project called the Solar Decathlon for two and a half years. It was a program run by the Department of Energy that has 20 universities competing against each other. Again, another experiential learning experience, right? So you as students will actually finance, design, and build a fully functional home that is sustainable in some capacity. It's got to be powered by the sun, solar decathlon, but it's got to do a bunch of other stuff too. It's got to be able to, you got to be able to wash a load of laundry and live off the grid, right? And part of that, you start looking at all the interconnected systems. You look at water, you look at energy, you look at food, the food, water, energy nexus, right? You start thinking about how those systems play off each other, but it wasn't thinking about it in a commercial ag sense. It was thinking about it more on the consumer side and how I think about food and how I think about my own storage of food or production of food or whatever it might be. And so we started, we had an edible garden in our landscape, right? And we were thinking about the really more urban side of producing food on just my own basis, on just my own consumerism. And it wasn't until after college that I really understood how what we as consumers start paying attention to actually has a really big impact on how commercial ag interacts with it and what the opportunities were there. So I stumbled upon commercial ag completely randomly. It had nothing to do with studying science. It had nothing to do with any of the projects I worked in. I kind of got lucky and met Paul Lightfoot when he was founding Bright Farms at the time and just really fell in love with, with what he was trying to build there and what indoor ag could do for the food system as a tool. And it became something that I couldn't stop thinking about. So it was really a random by chance thing. But I would say earlier, you start thinking about it a little bit, but it wasn't really my exposure to ag was pretty limited. But it seems that there's starting to be created like a thread of your interest in experiential learning, hands-on learning, and the connection of applied sciences to you know what's happening in nature. And sort of all those pieces were starting to put themselves together. and, and that's part of the reason I think why maybe why you were attracted to what was what was happening. And obviously, you know, Bright Farms when you joined it was 2011, it's early. What do you remember about uh, first meeting Paul? Yeah, so I will tell you distinctly, I had already had a job offer on the table when I had met Paul and and Toby Tiktinski at the time, who's also still working in energy, which I think you'll find a lot of professionals in this space work at that nexus between energy and food in some capacity. And most of us have had some career path either in or out of ag that ties into energy in some capacity. But I had had a job offer on the table for a solar investment firm that was deploying large scale solar and met Paul and Toby in this tiny little office that we had at the time in the Flatiron that was like quintessential New York City startup, I'd say, not very Silicon Valley startup, right? New York has its own environment and ethos around it, a little bit maybe less ping pong table type attitude, a little bit more just cramped space because it's New York and we have no space. (laughs) Is it still called Silicon Alley? (laughs) Sure, it might be, but that's definitely not where we were, right? We were in this tiny, tiny space. And I met them and I distinctly, I don't really remember much about Paul at the time, other than like his infectious attitude, if you've ever talked with Paul and anybody who's listening is who's met him or heard him speak, there's something infectious about how a lot of leaders in this space talk about the industry. 
What I do remember is thinking to myself, man, I know nothing about tomatoes or growing tomatoes or lettuce or leafy greens or anything, but my goodness, this model seems really interesting. And it, like a bug, I think a lot of the people who are going to be on this podcast or who have been on it will probably say something similar where they've been bitten by the bug a little bit, right? And I got home to my apartment at the time and I sat down and I called my mother and I said, mom, listen, I've got a really good job offer on the table. (laughs) I've already kind of accepted it. But let me tell you about this thing and this experience I had. And let me tell you about this founder I met. And she's like, well, I think you should just go for it, right? I think you should just go for it. Grow tomatoes. Who knows? Like grow leafy greens. Grow whatever it is that they're growing in there. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm on board. And I jumped. And it was this really magical moment of, you know, everything that was happening in 2011 in this industry was really exciting. It was the beginning. It was the very, very, very beginning of what is the venture-backed model for indoor ag, which was a lot of fun, a lot of challenges, a lot of exciting stuff. And so it was just a lot of fun. It still is a lot of fun. Did you say you have kids? I do not have kids. Okay. I'm just wondering how important it was to have that sounding board of your mother for a decision like that. Because obviously, if you felt it was an important decision and you wanted someone who's a, whose opinion you valued. And so obviously, you thought of calling her. Yeah, my mother's the, one of those people. She has a phrase for me. And she knows me probably better than anyone on this planet. Maybe better than my husband, probably. But she always tells me like a girl can dream. She loves to let me dream a little bit and always has supported my brain and my, the weirdness that comes with any entrepreneur's brain, I think, is weird. <laughs> and ambition, right? Like we're all ambitious. We've all we've all got these the crazy gumption to think that you could actually change the world, right? It's irrational. And yet there's something really wonderful in the irrationality because it leads to something incredibly logical, which is creating a business. And so her as a sounding board, it, it's not so much that she was going to steer me in any direction. It was more just to hear yourself against a whiteboard, right? It's kind of like that that experience where you whiteboard yeah. and you sit down and you say like, okay, here's what's in my brain and let me put it against a wall. And that's sort of who the role that my mother has always played for me. My father runs businesses. They're all like entrepreneurs in their own right. And so it's helpful to have somebody where you can say, hey, you've done something like this, maybe not a tech startup or anything like this, but you've done something like this. And I'm going to throw some crazy ideas at you. And I want you to just sit there with it a little bit and then help me make sure that I'm not making the absolute worst decision of my life. But but either way, I'm probably going to make it on my own. And you're just going to be there to, to stand by even if I make the worst decision of my life. So, you know, there's something kids can serve in this role, your spouse can partner, yeah. right? Anybody who loves you unconditionally is going to kind of have that mentality usually in that helper role. And, and, you know, my mother's always been that person for me and, and still is that person for me. Yeah, that's very interesting. And, and I imagine you've probably had the opportunity to play that role for some folks or now in your life. Yeah, I love mentoring. I really, really love coaching other founders, if only just to avoid all the mistakes that I've made (laughs) to speed up their paths to success. It's a lot of fun, right? It's a lot of fun. There's something infectious about founders and entrepreneurs in that, again, it's being around that energy of I can do something that has a meaningful impact on this world in some capacity. I can make a dent in and secure my place in this in this universe. And and not just I want to skate by and sort of be on the earth. It's I want to have a real impact on this earth. And that energy is incredibly infectious. And so, yeah, I've had the absolute pleasure of working with various companies like or organizations like Techstars to mentor other founders in the ag space, an investor in a female-focused 
fund called X Factor Ventures, where we get to actually invest and deploy capital into early stage founders. So definitely feel really lucky to have the opportunity to work with lots of founders and pick up on their energy just as much as I can hopefully give back a little. Yeah. So Bright Farms, when you started, that was almost 10 years ago. Crazy, huh? (laughs) Time flies, right? (laughs) In your time there, what would you think was the biggest takeaway, your biggest learnings from working with the team there? Oh, man. Biggest learnings. So first I'll say it's exponential learning curve, right? So for me, I didn't know anything about growing. It was sort of getting, what is the phrase? You're drinking from the, the water fire hose, fire hose right? You're, yeah. or, you're, or you're trying to take off on a plane while you're building the wings or something, right? Yeah. Any of those phrases directly applies when you join a startup in some capacity. And one of the cool things about Bright Farms was we were trying to do something so big and so infrastructure heavy that it required just a lot, right? So software, totally different world. You can be pretty capital light and scale a software business pretty fast, um, depending on the industry, of course, depending on your customer type, depending on the market, all those kinds of things. But if you're building a consumer app, you can build an app in a day, release it. I mean, if you can get on the Apple Store in a day, but let's assume yeah, you yeah. can, right? You can get an application up and running in a day, put it on the App Store, put a website up and have people using it all within a week, right? And that's really, really incredible. For something like building greenhouses and things, it's just a lot more infrastructure. There's a lot more capital. There's a lot of physical resource that needs to go into it. There's a lot more people that have to be involved. There's a lot more. So it's, you know, working there was an incredible experience where you got hit with lessons from everywhere all the time. And you're just trying to catch up all the time, which is a lot of fun. I will say my number one learning, which wasn't so much a learning as it was advice, was Paul and I, when we when I let him know that I was starting Artemis Agrilist at the time, we had a sit down and we had a great chat. And one of the things he said was, now my role at the company was had nothing to do with sales for what it's worth. It was a lot of government relations and operations. It was helping establish new facilities, helping understand the data science on the farm. So working on the farm and expanding new operations. So nothing related to sales. But he said, you know, if you're going to do this, you need to get better at sales. Like you need to understand that as a skill set and you need to do it. And I was like, you know, hey, that's fair advice. Like, I I don't know if I'm good at sales at all. I have no idea if I've never really sold anything other than, you know, ideas. And I was sold like stuff for school uniforms and things (laughs) (laughs) for sports and stuff, maybe wrapping paper, (laughs) but, you know, had never really sold stuff. Right. And, and that always stuck with me because I think I jumped to an assumption that I was bad at sales because that was the advice, even though it wasn't necessarily true. It's just the assumption that I jumped to. And so I spent so long and still, still spend time trying to understand everything there is to understand about how to sell stuff, whether it's your own products or the vision of the company or raising funding for your company, whatever it is that you're trying to do as a founder is sales. Every single thing, when you're hiring, when you're in an all hands presenting the OKRs for the year, your goals for the year, all of those things, that's all sales, right? You want people to come along for the journey on this crazy, ridiculous ride with very limited traction to they can trust is a real thing. You're trying to create something out of thin air most of the time. And so you have to sell it. You have to sell that vision. And it's probably the skill set that has helped me the most in building what is our company but also it's probably one of the stronger skill sets I have now, which is really funny, but it's because I put in the work. And so, you know, not so much a lesson, but advice that turned into a lesson that turned into a, wow, I did not realize how much of my job was going to be this. And therefore I should get, become an expert in it, which has been a lot of fun over the last few years. 
I think it's one of the most underestimated skill sets that entrepreneurs need because to your point, you're selling People think traditionally sales is going to be selling someone a product, buy my stuff. But yeah, give me money for my thing, right? <laughs> but then it's like you have to sell your team on the vision. You have to sell new hires on the excitement of working for this company. Partners, you have to sell You know, people who want to invest in the company, you have to sell. So out of the resources you had access to, were there one or two things that you can think of that were helpful in that journey, in that sales journey? Or it was just a, a wide variety of things over time? Yeah. And just, and to go on your point, by the way, about sort of the money for item thing, my friend Preet Anand, who also a founder in the Bay Area and now runs product safety for Lyft, which is again, crazy time to be running safety for, for somebody like Lyft. But he writes this great newsletter. And one of the things I think he said recently was you have various currencies of life. You know, you have time, you have attention, money, and I think social capital is the fourth one. But the idea that you're always exchanging something for something else. And so sales, I think if you can put on that lens of it's not just a monetary necessarily, right? You have time, attention, money, and social capital. You're trying to build, you're trying to exchange these things at all steps for things. And so if you can get good at bartering those things and you build and establish that skill set, then you're going to be more successful at stuff. So just that's an aside. As far as resources go. There's so many resources now, which is kind of cool. It's a very different time, frankly, than when I was starting the company or even back at Bright Farms or even earlier than that, where a lot of founders are talking about stuff a lot more. So there is a lot of good resource. I mean, if you're thinking about SaaS at all, right, you should be following Jason Lemkin. That's just number one, put Saster and his blog posts and everything on your list. There are some great books out there around sales and trying to understand all the different methodologies around sales, right? So whether you're learning the challenger method or spin selling or whatever it may be, you should just try it, look around to see how different people are selling stuff and then focus on meeting people, right? Talk to every person you can talk to in sales, right? Talk to VP level consultants, AEs, SDRs, anybody you can talk to to understand how they're going about their day and then other founders about how they structure their teams. I think this is going to be probably one of the big early mistakes people make in their business is that, for example, we hired director level salesperson, probably in month two of starting the business as if we had anything to actually go out and sell, (laughs) which, you know, we were, we were trying, we were going out and selling what was our probably beta or earliest version of our product pretty soon, but it didn't mean that we needed a director level person. I needed to be selling it, right? I had to be selling it to everybody. And then you have to grow from there and you have to learn what works and doesn't work for your business. In ag, we have a really interesting dynamic of, should you be hiring people from the ag industry or should you be hiring really good Salespeople, should you be hiring somebody who knows how to sell software if you're a software company like we are and who's an expert in SaaS? If you're a sensor company, a hardware company, should you be selling somebody who knows how to sell hardware or should you be selling, hiring somebody who knows how to sell to farmers? I don't know the answer for your business, right? But for us, we had to learn the hard way over years of what worked, what didn't work, how how to scale that, what to think about, what not to do at all. And so I think the more that you can expose yourself to one, different methodologies, two, what people do on a day basis and like who they sell to, how personas work, all that kind of stuff, it's helpful. And then three, you really have to just do it. That's like, I guess the short Nike version of it, you have to just do it, right? You have to 
go out there and sell stuff, go out there and talk about your vision. First of all, as in your early days, right? Day one, day two, day three, when you've just got an idea, if you can't explain it to your grandmother and have her go, <laughs> oh yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense, right? <laughs> like if you can't explain it to pick 10 people who have nothing to do with your industry in any capacity. And if they're like, oh, that sounds great, go do it then you probably don't know how to sell it, right? You don't know how to get the vision yet. And that's something that I always recommend is just tell as many people, build in public, right? I think a lot of people take the, I need to be private about this for so long. Talk to people, just tell people what you're doing. The more you're gonna get the resonance of the, and the practice and the repetition, frankly, of telling people about it, the better off you're gonna be. So many things in there that are really interesting. First, just working backwards, this idea of building public is resonating because I got accepted into a fellowship with the On Deck community. Oh, congrats. Yeah. And since here's super good things about it. Yeah. So they're doing a lot of one of the cohorts is using no code tools to build your MVP. Yeah. So that's the one I'm in. So I'm building a podcast marketplace. But they're proponents of this build in public. Like it doesn't have to be pretty. And and I think we overthink as entrepreneurs, like having something to ship that's nice and, and having that MVP, but their whole mantra is, you know, to say, take your users, take your fans on the journey along with you. Mm -hmm. They'll be your biggest supporters and be cheering you on along the way. Yeah. In agriculture in particular, if you think about software, for example, the software industry in ag has really only been around since preface with the modern software, like the idea of SaaS business models, the idea of our management systems, really we've only been around since like 2009 at earliest, right? And in our industry, in the controlled environment ag industry, we were the first. So it just isn't that old. And one of the things that's really interesting is when you think about the clients who's buying your product, um, you can do one of two things. You can set expectations inherently or not around your product being an out of the box that works perfectly because it's going to be compared to Microsoft, right? And like, that's great. Or you can say, look, we're building in public, right? And we're going to have this attitude towards building a partnership with folks to build together. Again, I don't know if there's a right answer to that. I know what side I tend to be on, which is the build in public side and building good expectations and relationships with your partners. But I think for better or for worse, a lot of the industry took the other route. And it was more, there was this cloud of expectation. There still is this cloud of expectation around software that it has to just work and it has to work really, really well, and it has to work out of the box. And that's almost yeah. an unrealistic expectation <laughs> when the industry itself is so new, because yeah. that's just not how it works. If you think about NetSuite's early days, Salesforce is, Salesforce is still not an easy to use system that nobody really likes using. It just has dominated the market for so long, but they're continuously releasing because it still has room to grow, right? And NetSuite, same thing. Like, is it the best system to use? Not really, no, but it does what it needs to do. And it's interesting because we didn't give ourselves that flexibility in the agriculture industry in the same way. And that inherently causes a lot of things like high customer churn or a failure to launch, frankly. A lot of the companies just haven't gotten to real scale because there's a lot of lack of trust in, in these new startup technologies. And frankly, that's fair because farmers are getting sold startup stuff all the time, right? There's just a lot of stuff happening in this industry right now, which is great. Um, but Again, if we create those expectations and we build in public and we share these things, it's helpful. It's not just helpful for you as a company, but also you as a product. 
Yeah, so good. And that last point about sales, I think when you said you hired someone as a director because mainly because you wanted to get off your plate. <laughs> and I feel like as entrepreneurs, we do all we're so used to doing it all from day one. And the minute we think that we can get some help with something like sales, that's not our our forte. There is a, a tendency to try to hand it off as quick as possible. But I think to your point, we have to learn the basics of it because if we're not doing it, we don't know what we're handing off and yeah. we don't know if they're doing a good job or not. And they're going to tell us something and we're going to think that it's good. But until we've gone through it and sort of painfully worked our way through the bumps and bruises of it, then we'll, we'll feel it's at a point where we can hand it off. Yeah. And it's not so much getting it off your plate so much as maybe an artificial belief that there's someone out there that's so much better at this thing than you that they're going to come in and magically everything's going to be amazing. Like that, yeah, yeah, yeah. like it's a little <laughs> bit of both of those probably. And yeah, I fundamentally agree. Like I think there's my belief on on hiring in when you're doing a off the plate type of a hire. So, and this is going to happen all the time because at first you're a team of one, maybe two, maybe three. And then all of a sudden you're a team of five, then you're a team of 10, right? And then 20, 30, 50, whatever. But that you as the founding team are going to own everything. Then you're going to hand it off. Then you're going to own everything but the thing you handed off. Then you're going to hand something else off and you're going to keep in that that list keeps growing and you keep handing things off and that's just how it goes. My mantra on this is always that you have to know the ins and out. Like you can't hand off a sales process until you know what the conversion rates look like, what a funnel looks like, mm, what the personas yeah. look like, what sales materials you're using. I can't say I'm just going to hire a marketing team to create product marketing if I've never created it in the first place, if I don't know what my objective is, right? And it's interesting because we all do this when you hire a consultant for something. So if you hire a consultant or a de development shop or something like that to work on a project, you outline what the project is and you set expectations and then you hand it off to somebody to come do. And so I think of it kind of like that. It's not a one-to-one -one because obviously these are not people coming in for a short-term thing. It should be long-term, but you still have to think about the role and try and understand what it is now, what the state of it currently is in and where you want to go with it and then hire somebody who can elevate it, right? Take it to the next level take what you're already doing and grow it into something bigger or faster or whatever it is, and then think about where it fits in that long term. So interesting. And I think every entrepreneur is either cringing or nodding <laughs> as they, as they sure, listen to probably. this because you know we're all at different stages in that journey. And, and I think there's no manual for how to start a company. <laughs> and so we sort of think of, you know, figure it out as we go. And hopefully we have a team that can support us or people along the way that can help answer some of those questions. So to that point, as you were at Bright Farms, when did the idea for what was to become Artemis start to be born? And what was it that you were trying to solve? Yeah. So I tried so desperately to hand off the idea for Artemis. Originally, our company was Agrilist at the time. So if I reference it, that's usually when in the early days we were calling it Agrilist. But I tried to hand it off. Like as a person on the farm, I needed what we built. And I really wanted to have somebody else do it, frankly. I didn't know that I was entrepreneurial. Maybe I didn't know what was deep down inside. But I really loved where I was. And I just really wanted this tool. And this is the so many founder stories are very similar, right? I was experiencing this pain point. I couldn't get it out of my head. I had to do it, right? So I became kind of obsessed with this problem and started looking into the industry more broadly about who could use this. Was it just us? Everybody? Was it future built? Like, was it future operators? Who was going to use this product? And a series of conversations, probably a year before I started the company, to start just figuring it out a little bit. And mostly it was deep curiosity, frankly. It was just, is this an interesting enough idea? 
And I really became obsessed with this idea that tool that we were building had a bigger place in the industry because it could enable the actual success and growth of the industry. So we build a software tool, right? A platform that manages all of your operations, anything that can make you money, cost you money. So production planning, labor planning, compliance, food safety, tracking, traceability, all the uh, labor tasks, I think I mentioned labor, but tasks and all the things somebody's doing on the farm, all of those things are managed in Artemis, which in and of itself is a tool for the farmer. But once you have your information in there, what are all the other things that you need to do as a farm to really run a business, right? I need to potentially secure capital. Maybe I'm expanding or maybe my terms on my real estate loan are not very good, or maybe I want insurance plans that I want better rates. So how can we use the information in Artemis to get you access to that capital, right? We're de-risking inherently that investment for somebody. And so now, years, six years later, now we connect with some lenders to help offer those rates, more affordable, less risky rates to growers who are expanding. But there's other areas in there, right? There's inputs. How can we help connect to better supply of inputs? Can we get better rates on inputs? It's really expensive right now to buy your seed or chem or whatever it is that you're buying because one, the market's fragmented. It's smaller in the US, for example, than it is globally. You're not operating hundreds of thousands of acres globally as an operator. You're probably operating one, maybe five, 10, 15 mm-hmm. facilities, but at max, yeah. it's just a little bit more fragmented. So you're paying higher prices and there aren't that many seed companies who are making products for our industry yet, which is a new exciting area. So can we almost like a co-op pool those resources of people using Artemis to get access? So this is a long story, but the short of it is I started becoming obsessed with this idea that software could broaden the industry, could help it expand, could help operators do it in a sustainable and profitable way, frankly, and that we could really tap into some of these more systemic, interesting ideas around sustainability and traceability and food safety and some of the things that we as a system like to talk about all the time, but are hard to actually execute in any meaningful way. And that software like was the underlying infrastructure for all of that to happen. So I started thinking about it a year before we started. We started the company in 2015, I think April of 2015. And how has the vision of what you thought the industry might need changed over the years? That's a great question. Originally, we thought that the biggest win for growers was going to be getting data from all of their fragmented systems into one place. So kind of the operating system and call it Twilio, if you will, of the farm, right? The idea that you could pull climate control data into one place, lighting data, fertigation, irrigation data, all this stuff into one place. And were they doing this, was this all homegrown at the time? Yeah, so it's still kind of the same, right? You have these legacy players that are leading the way, Priva, Ritter, Hogendorn, all these companies that are Dutch. There's some small startups now globally um, that are kind of entering the market, but you had these really big Dutch players in the climate control space. And lighting was really Fluence at the time, now Osram, uh, or now part of Osram. Philips, you know, GE was sort of in the space a little bit. And then you had some, again, some startups coming in. But you had these handful of systems that were all different. Almost all the legacy hardware did not have APIs at the time, right? This is six, seven years ago, 10 years ago, right? Um, there were not really APIs. So there was no real way to connect to them. So a lot of people had CSV types of downloads of data that you could maybe push into a system if you built a little creative script to push something in, right? So that's what the situation was. And what my, you know, what our thesis at the time was, was if you kind of 
brought all of those CSVs into one place. You could do interesting stuff with it. You could do really nice reporting. You could do forecasting. You could do all these things. What I didn't, that hasn't changed, by the way. Like the thesis around that, you still want to bring all of your information into one place. But that being the most important thing, it wasn't, it turned out. What wasn't the most important thing was really taking all of the pen and paper processes that you had on the farm and turning that digital because that led to direct top line, bottom line improvements. So that was things like who's doing what on the farm? Are they actually doing what they say they're going to do, right? Did that task actually get done? Did it not? So one of our customers, we were talking to them the other day, and they had this huge problem that people just assumed stuff magically happened, but nobody had any accountability. And this is a massive, massive operation, right? This is yeah. 20, 50 acre farm, which in greenhouse world is big. And so they had this assumption and, and therefore things get done all the time. And then what would happen, which is great, is that you would just have shorts or longs on product every once in a while because people were moving or not moving or doing the thing or not doing the thing at given times and there was no accountability. And so that's something that we focused on pretty dramatically and then tying that into what what actually happens on the farm. So workflow and automating all of that and digitizing it so there's a consistent record of it. What you can then do with all the climate data is layer it on top. So if I know how a crop is performing, from a yield perspective, from a time perspective, then you can layer on the climate data, the people data, and start to really piece together what's happening on the farm. And so I don't know that that's a change assumption, except for that the priority definitely changed being an integrator, which is not really what we do. We do integrate with things, but we're not an integrator to really the full operating system of the farm and understanding all of that information from seed to sort of end of life cycle of the plant. How much of that is leveraging new technologies like IoT or, you know, where you have to like track the specific minutia of, of what's moving where? How much of that is systems or systematizing processes? I love geeking out on automations yeah. and, and tools like Zapier fascinate me. So whenever, you know, put processes in place that help a company be more efficient, I'm wondering how many moving parts are you thought were initially evolved and, and how that's grown over time? Yeah. So... From an IoT standpoint, I, I don't think we're there yet, frankly, and I always talk about this pretty openly in the industry. There's, again, when you have a system, if you're a grower, right, let's say you've been around for a long time, 30 years, 40 years, you've already got your hardware and the life cycle on that hardware is long. So I'm not replacing my million dollar system, my $2 million system, probably frequently, right? And so if you think about the the life cycle of technology and where we're at from a river red crossing the chasm or something like that, right? If you think about the technology life cycle, we're really early in IoT and, and hardware from the industry's perspective, but we're also at the late stage of that first wave of technology from 30, 40, 50 years ago that will phase out because technology dies, but it will phase out. We're not there yet. And this technology on the early side hasn't yet caught up and so mm-hmm. we haven't like bridged the gap between those two things yet, which is an interesting place to be because what you have is the legacy players in the industry, the enterprise operations are mostly on older hardware, most are old technology, but starting to really bring new stuff in. They're bringing new software in. They're bringing new, if they can integrate, they're trying to integrate, but it doesn't yet talk, right? But they're bringing all this new stuff in from a workflow standpoint, from an automation standpoint too. You know, you're getting a lot of new automated harvesting, automated seeding, all these types of things. And then on the flip side, you have some of these newer operations, which are starting new and just continuing to grow. So you have a a dichotomy in the industry about automation. So, you know, from an IoT standpoint, 
I don't think we're there yet because we haven't built a solution for that old technology. So either the old technology has to phase out completely, or you have to build a solution for getting that information out from older solutions. So that's one. Two, though, on that is that you have to think about the dynamic of those companies, where the incentive is for them to tie in, right? So if I'm a Dutch horticulture company and my competitive advantage is in, and I'm directly competitive, by the way, with like only two companies, and it is highly competitive, then where is my incentive? Well, it's probably not with opening up to other things. If And like I can take the closed route and I can just beat everybody one at a time, right? I can just beat everybody down one at a time. The flip side, obviously, I would love if everybody saw their competitive advantage as opening up. And you are seeing this a little bit more in the attitude and you're seeing APIs come on to the market and things like this, which is great. But it's still the first step of that. We're still really early there. So it's more of the Apple approach than the sort of Microsoft approach to things right now, but that's going to change. It is changing. I should, you know, give the industry some credit in that it is thinking a lot more forward about how these systems can all play in. How does that also play into the need for new skill sets to work with all these systems? I think, you know, the job description for, you know, CEA, for positions in CEA probably looks drastically different now than they did, you know, five to 10 years ago. Yeah. So I do these um, live talks on LinkedIn and just was talking to one of our customers and they are a database admin data engineer type role for a farm. Right. And that didn't exist in any, like nobody would be thinking about automating database syncing with other systems and it's in a past life. And so that's happening. So there's on-farm roles that are evolving of how do we think about our data on-farm? How do we think about our technologies? And it's evolving from more of a IT professional to more of a data centric, more of a an understanding and appreciation probably for these mo- more modern technologies, things like SaaS, things like that. So that's happening on the farm. There's also the companies themselves, right? So you now have what used to be an industry that was mostly ag professionals, which heavily research-based, right? You have lots of scientists, you have lots of people who understand genetics, you have really heavy focus on that, which is still happening. It's just, again, everything's always becoming a little bit more innovative. But now you have technology companies coming on. And so now you've got kind of this two-framed attitude. You've got people who are saying, hey, we're Silicon Valley type company. I guess I have to say type company now because we're all remote, right? So a Silicon Valley air quote company, maybe they're in Silicon Valley, maybe they're in Miami, who knows these days. But you've got these startups that are saying, hey, we can hire the best engineers in the world and we're going to build a tech company that just sells to ag. You've got, on the other hand, companies that say, no, we're going to put all the ag, the best ag people together and we're going to build technology for farmers, but we know the market better. The approach that we took at Artemis is blend the two together, right? We're going to say, we're going to put the best of both worlds together And that's going to bridge the gap and it's going to help us, one, develop technology faster because that's the beauty of startups, right, in Silicon Valley. And two, but we're going to understand our customer and we're not going to build fast just for the sake of building fast. We're going to build good products, get them out to the market fast and work with our customers to always improve. It's sort of that hybrid approach. But to give you an example of one of our engineers, she worked in commercial nursery operations in Oregon and then studied engineering, went back and studied computer engineering, Mm -hmm. came to us as an intern, is working her way up through the engineering ranks with us and has been with us after she listens to this. But I think she's been with us now four years and she's, she's sort of been growing into this nice senior engineering role with us that is a true sort of Silicon Valley level engineering role but came to us from a totally non-traditional background, came from horticulture into the space. And I think there's room for that. That's what's really exciting is there's room for 
I want to blend the two things together in some capacity, whether I'm coming at it one way or the other, thinking about how you can approach it in lots of different ways. Yeah, it does feel like there's going to be more of a need for these hybrid skill sets for people. And those are the people that are, and also the ability to work well with ambiguity, I think at times is just to understand what the future challenges could possibly look like. Oh, yeah. I think this is super interesting to me as a founder in particular, as I build out the team. And it's something that I've really worked to to both encourage and reduce at the same time. This is funny, but you try and have as little ambiguity for the team as possible, right? Have a roadmap, have a plan. But at the same time, it's a startup. Everything's going to change all the time. And we as founders know that really well. But especially if you're thinking about building a team where people haven't worked at startups before, which is going to be the case in ag, is not everybody's going to have worked at a startup. You have to think about how to set those expectations well and think about ambiguity is not something most people are used to in a job. Yeah. Right? You have a career path, you have a ladder, you've got objectives, you maybe have quotas, you have this sort of set path for yourself in a career. So the idea of breaking all of that and saying, we want to be comfortable with a product roadmap where we can throw everything out the window and pull new things in as we go. Like That's a wonky thing. And unless you've worked at startups or in the tech industry before, that's not a comfortable feeling for a lot of people. And so creating an environment where you set expectations that you can do that, you also have roadmaps, you have product plans, you have company plans, right? You have these things, but you balance the ambiguity with semblance of here's where we're going, right? Like here is where we're going. How we get there might change, but at least where we're going is pretty clear. That being said, even sometimes that gets thrown out the window too in a startup, right? And that if you have to pivot and there's companies who have pivoted really well, but you have to allow that flexibility. So I think that's even more important in our industry where you're not going to always be building a team that is 100% people who came from startup. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as you think about the next three to five years, and I know it's hard to predict, especially with the landscape changing so quickly, and and I'm sure your plans for this year were dramatically different in February of 2020 <laughs> <laughs> than they had to evolve to. So that being said, how do you think about what's to come in terms of what you're working on at Artemis and what has you excited? Yeah. So I probably don't foresee this changing too much, actually. The long term is usually easier to plan sometimes than short term. But our plan hasn't really changed long term since we started the company, which has been, again, great and, and wonderful to work on. Where we're really excited, what gets me really excited is that we're sort of finally at a point as a company and an industry, frankly, where we can work together to really physically expand this industry. So I talked about this a little bit earlier, but we have been working to develop this product that people love, that people really enjoy working with, that really solves a lot of the challenges that you have on the farm. We took last year to really focus on building up into the enterprise operations. So that was a big focus of last year, irrespective of what happened with the global pandemic that we've got going on. <laughs> we all still need to eat, which is a luxury that we have in this industry, right? So we moved upstream to a lot of these larger enterprise operations last year. And now for the next few years, we're going to be really focused on how we can not just continue delivering that value to growers, but also keep working towards offering these new financial products to offer some new other things that I can't talk too much detail about yet, but that have physically expand what we can do to a grower and then also expand the industry and help new growers get on the market faster, help people expand their operations. So that's going to be a big focus for us over the next few years. That's exciting. And is there a company blog where you keep 
fans of Artemis up to date on what's to come and, and what's what's happening? Yeah, absolutely. At ArtemisAg.com, we've got a blog all right on our site, which is where there's a lot of good updates. But we also yeah. do two things. One, we have these live chats that we do on LinkedIn, which I highly recommend checking out. We usually interview a grower or business owner in some capacity in this space once a week. And we have these chats. And so that's a good place to hear about what's going on in the industry. And then I also have a personal newsletter where I update a lot of, I build in public, right? So I, I talk a yeah. lot about the startup journey and things. So you can also find that on, on Substack. It's called Snippets. And so sip, yeah, I saw that, Substack, yeah, .com. The whole newsletter economy is, that's another fascinating <laughs> industry that I've been interested in. I follow it because of podcasting and now we're starting the Vertical Farming Weekly. So that's its own rabbit hole. Yeah. And you, hear, you hear about the whole economy there as well. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I mean, for me, I, like I said earlier, I'm really challenged by writing. And so yeah. it's really hard for me to write in with brevity and clarity. <laughs> and to do it fast is hard. So I try and do this bi-weekly newsletter and just share some of the stuff that's going on, some of the things that I'm learning and thinking about, which has been a lot of fun. And it's been growing nicely, which has been a lot of fun to interact with other people who are experiencing some of the same things that I'm experiencing as a founder and to just talk about them openly. Also another one of those skill sets as an entrepreneur and as a founder that probably behooves you to <laughs> try to learn and get better at. I think everybody, skills. I think everybody should be good yeah. at writing. Like anybody yeah. who is, you don't have to be stellar, right? But just having that base set of being good at writing is, yeah, you definitely want to have that. <laughs> Just a little bit before we wrap up, I want to talk about your role at X Factor Ventures. Mm -hmm. And when did you engage with them? And why is that something that's important to you? Because I think one of the interesting things that I read about is the focus on investments in companies, not only with billion dollar market opportunities, but that have at least one female founder, which I thought was great. Yeah, so X Factor Venture is a really cool fund. It's very standard venture capital fund in the way that you think about the way that it's structured and how we think about investments, right? You're looking for these billion dollar opportunities. We're thinking about things that are going to have a really dynamic impact on various markets and the way that we look for returns and things. Really untraditional in the way that we are structured is that all of our investors are also full-time founders. And so there are a bunch of different ways these funds can be structured in the market. You hear a lot maybe about the scouts that's been a rise in venture capital in the past few years where big funds like Sequoia might have founders who are also scouts. And, and the idea being founders by nature tend to have really interesting deal flow because we see we meet other founders and other founders yeah. come to us and we interact all the time. And you don't really realize it until you're like, that person. I would invest in that person everything I've got. And of course, us as founders, we have no money. We never do until you do, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so you're like, ah, oh, man, I really wish I could invest in this person. And so what X Factor did was instead of setting up a scout fund, we said, let's set up an actual fund where it's going to be managed by the founders, but it's going to utilize the infrastructure of bigger funds because founders also don't have the time to do the, the infrastructure stuff that comes with an, a real full-time job as an investor. And the idea being you could capitalize on this deal flow that founders inherently run into. So we have a lot of partners for a small fund. Usually you'll have like one partner for the size of fund we are, but we have, I don't know, 14, 20, some big amount of partners because I have a full-time job. <laughs> I have to run my own company. But, or, and we also, the other thing that's really interesting about us is that we invest in female founded companies. So like you said, we have to have at least one female founder could be mixed gender, you know, whatever kind of founding team you want, but it has to have at least one female founder, one woman on the founding team. And that's been a lot of fun too. I think the most interesting thing has been how diverse the, our investment portfolio has been when it comes to industry. 
I think a lot of people wrongly make the assumption that, oh, they're investing in women. So it's going to be all femtech type things, which we do have some, a lot of femtech in our portfolio, but we've done a quantum computing deal. Like I've done a quantum computing deal, synthetic CBD pharmaceutical play. So there's, it sort of really runs the gamut from B2B enterprise to femtech and B2C type stuff. So that's been a lot of fun and it's been great working with all the founders that we've had the chance to work on. So I've got I think six companies and that I've invested in that again really run the gamut when it comes to industry and and what they're doing. We are early stage so we'd like to see things really really early. Pre-seed and seed is the sort of investment stage that we look at. So we love things that are in that like idea very yeah. limited traction. Maybe they have revenue but really early stage. And that must be its own set of learnings, <laughs> early days as a VC and uh, early mistakes and, and just a whole nother industry to sort of master, which would take a lifetime to do. Yeah, we're lucky because we have great people like Chips, who, who's with Flybridge, who started the fund X Factor. Okay. And so he has mastered it, right? He has been doing yeah. this his whole career. And so... He's also a partner. And then, I mean, a lot of the founders are now pretty successful VCs because they sold their companies. And so they sort of are investing in the second wind. And I wouldn't, you know, no, we are not all masters at this, right? Like that's absolutely not the goal. But there is something to say about understanding the founder and the founder mentality and trying to find that and invest in that, right? And that is something that you can do as a founder because you know what the day-to-day is like. And so you can kind of recognize that. The other stuff comes, right? The other stuff, as an investor, you're making about that, in the early stage at least, you're making about that the market is massive, really, really, really massive. You're making about that the founding team is a good founding team. The founders are good, smart, good, have the mentality, right? All those things. And that that founding team can connect the dots, right? Can get can build something really interesting in that big market. It's a that's a wide yeah. that's a wide bet to make, right? But if you can at least get those things, then the rest should follow, right? Like, and something interesting can be built. But obviously, the rate of success of most of these funds pretty low, right? The success of startups is pretty low. So you're just trying to. I always make the analogy of having like dimes on a table. And mm. each one of those dimes is a little bit of risk. And you're like trying to take them off one at a time. Yeah. And, you know, other dimes come on the table. You're trying to take them off and put more dimes on. But like, you're just trying to make a bet that you can guess better than somebody else can, that that you can understand the risk. And what's interesting is that as a founder, there's things you know, having experienced it, that you can relate to and have those conversations with other founders that people who haven't gone through the founder's journey, I think, can't relate to, I think, which which I think makes it special. As I well. think that's the yeah. really beautiful thing about the fund, actually, is that the founders can tap into, we're not, we don't take board seats, right? We're not the investor investor. We're not leading rounds. We're not that kind of investor. And what's nice about that is they can tap into not just the person who invested in them, but the entire network of founders that are with X Factor to really have an operational sounding board. And so everything from I had one of our founders ask, you know, text me for a distribution agreement because they just didn't want to spend the legal money to do it, right? So I sent them mine. Things like that to strategically think about new markets or something. So it's a lot of stuff that we've, if I haven't gone through it, somebody else on the team has gone through it. So it's an opportunity to tap into that, which is great to help stop making the mistakes that we made, right? I'll have to introduce you to one of my clients, uh, Sylvia Ma. She, she has a podcast called She Invests. She focuses solely on conversations with female investors. Oh, that's awesome. So that would be great. Just a couple last questions. What's a, a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently? Where do I want to live? 
<laughs> Good one. It yeah. is, right? So my husband and I are definitely thinking about what comes next for us from a living standpoint. And especially as things have gone fully remote, we were 90% remote anyway, as a team going into COVID. And, but now personally, it creates an opportunity to live somewhere else. And so I don't know if we're going to stay in New York. I don't know if we're going to stay in Pennsylvania, where we're currently at. I don't know if we're going to move elsewhere. So you know, if, if the mayor of Miami wants to welcome us down there for a meeting, we'd probably happily take it, right? So we just don't know where we're going to live yet and where we're going to keep building. And that's been an, a really fun thing to think about. What's going on with Miami? Because I keep hearing like it's... Listen, it's, I keep it's, hearing it's the next place to be. So I think we're going to have to go check it out at some point. <laughs> I've had, a, I don't know if you're familiar with Upstream app. It's a sort of a networking iPhone only app, but there's been a lot of VC conversations on there. And the I founder think all of, of Silicon Valley moved to Miami. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny because a lot of the conversations are originating from Miami, which I think is fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> Wherever there's warm weather, right? Yeah, but it's very warm if you've not gone yeah. to Miami. <laughs> yeah. What do you miss most from New York? Uh, bagels. Death. Yes. Like obvious, right. obvious, easy answer is bagels. Like there's just nowhere in the world that you can get a New York bagel. I don't care how close to New York you <laughs> are so or what imitation somebody's trying to hawk you, but you cannot get a good bagel outside of New York. That's so funny. That's the one thing I pizza and then everything bagel. Yeah. And everything bagel, a good untoasted everything bagel. Can't find it. Well, on that note, everyone's <laughs> mouths are watering. Allison, Go get thank your you so bagels. Much. <laughs> Go get your bagels. Thank you so much for this conversation. I was really looking forward to it, especially with the, the background you had and the experience you had. I'm glad we were able to connect. And just, yeah, just learning more about the industry every day and the challenges you've faced and overcome. And I think the being a just a, a spokesperson for this industry, I think is a great thing. So I appreciate you taking the time to share your story. It's been a real pleasure. This was a lot of fun. Where's the best place for folks? You mentioned the blog. Anywhere else for folks to connect with you and Artemis? Yeah, we're on all social media forms. So you can just find us at Artemis Ag on social media. And then my personal is my name, Allison Koff. So follow us. You can probably reach out to me directly on any of those platforms. Yeah. Thanks, Allison. Thank you. Thanks again to Allison coming on the show and sharing her story. As always, full show notes are available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. Special thanks to our season three title sponsor, Cultivated. If you're looking into a vertical farm and don't know where to start, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is free for you because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com, and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out that last E. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Sign up for a free podcast brainstorm at fullcast.co forward slash chat 15. Tune in next week for my conversation with Robert Lang, CEO of Farm One. As a reminder, if you're enjoying the show, leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFB. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. Until we meet again next week, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.
Special thanks to our episode sponsor, Series Greenhouse Solutions. Series is creating sustainable growing environments by combining smart design, innovative technology, and dynamic partnerships. Learn more at seriesgs.com. That's C E R E S G S.com.